you can head out now to children's worship. So whenever whenever we have church uh, on a holiday, you, n- you never uh, really know what to expect, you know, in terms of folks coming and stuff. And so since it's President's Day weekend, we were, um, right, it's, that's the holiday, right, President's Day weekend, uh, you just, yeah, you never know. I do find it highly ironic that... In the providence of God, we are at First Peter 3, 1 to 7. We began last week uh, on uh, this day, Valentine's Day. Um, so it is what it is. Uh, those of you who know me know that in a million years, I would never plan to do that. And so, um, um, but um, we began this text last week talking primarily about the first couple of verses, and we're going to we're going to look at the rest of the, uh, the, the text this morning. It's, uh, and if you, so if you want more about uh, particularly the issue of submission, that's, I did more with that last week than I'm going to do with it uh, this week. So, uh, but today we're going to look at 1 Peter. I'm going to read 3, 1 to 7, looking at uh, the second uh, part, uh, uh, half of, the, uh, of this text. So uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Likewise... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, since it is Valentine's Day today, I thought and... I know a lot of you are giving out cards and getting cards and, you know, all the sentimentality. I thought uh, we'd look at a few quotes uh, this morning from some uh, great writers uh, that kind of talk about love and that kind of stuff. So the first one's from A.A. Mom. You know, he's the guy who wrote uh, Winnie the Pooh, right? So he knows a lot about love. When I first read this quote, I thought it was awesome. The more I've read it, the more terrifying it is to me. And uh, troubling it is to me, like, uh, this is not a great quote about love. If you live to be 100, I want to live uh, to be 100 minus one day. So I never have to live without you. Which is really terrible, because I'm going to make you live a day without me on the day before you die. So... at, so, you know, you know how it is. You, write, you, you read something the first time and you're like, that's awesome. And then the more I read it, I was like, uh, that's really selfish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Uh, the other one's from Marilyn Robinson's novel, Lila. Lila is a, is a woman who grows up with no family, with no understanding of, of family at all. I mean, literally. What she learns about family, she observes from other uh, uh, people. And so she's, someone says to her, uh, as she sees a couple, she goes, they're married people. Lila had no particular notion of what the word married meant, except there was an endless, pleasant joke between them, that's between the couple, that excluded everybody else, and that all the rest of them were welcome to admire. Actually, I think, what a, what a, what a great uh, quote about marriage. And if you don't understand that, um, ask Kim Green about it. Uh, <laughs> Schedule. Schedule, schedule a, a, a counseling appointment with her. Now, before, Becky, before you put the next quote up there, um, I, um, one of the great things about my children having a classical education is, is that they love to read great books. And my daughter, in particular, has a love for great books, particularly books written in the 1800s that are love stories. Now, if I could have found a quote that was reasonable from Wuthering Heights, I would have put that up here because that's her favorite book. Uh, Heathcliff and all that. Uh, I mean, literally, that's her favorite book. She reads it every year. Uh, but one of the books that she and I love together is the uh, Victor Hugo novel, Les Miserables. And, you know, I think of it as a, a parable of the gospel. Well, when Madeline reads it, it's a love story. And I love, my favorite part of the book is at the beginning of the book when, <clears throat> uh, um, oh, I can't believe I forgot his name. Yeah. <laughs> steals, steals from the priest. I just think, and the interaction when the priest forgives him. To me, that the book begins and ends there. So I told her that when she read the book. She's like, that's not the best part of the book. This is the best part of the book. Then he stammered, you love me. She answered with a voice so low that it was scarcely to be heard, of course, you know I do. And she hid her russet. Now, when I hear russet, I think potato, but <laughs> that, that, it means red, right? Red-headed. We're, we're, we're really going through the Valentine's thing today, so... She hid her russet head against the breast of the triumphant and marveling young man. He fell back on the bench with her at his side. Neither could speak. The stars were beginning to show. How did it happen that their lips came together? How does it happen that birds sing, that snow melts, that the rose unfolds, uh, that the dawn <laughs> whitens behind the dark shapes of the trees on the quivering? There's a lot of quivering in this. In this. There's an earthquake going on here while they're... <laughs> while they're doing this, right? Behind the stark shapes of trees on the quivering summit of the hill, a kiss, and all was said. Both were trembling. They looked at each other with eyes shining in the dusk, unconscious of the cool of the night, the chill of the stone bench. Now, have you ever sat on a cold stone bench before? The dampness of the earth, the dew on the grass. They looked at each other, their hearts filled with their thoughts. Without knowing it, they had clasped hands. My, my daughter's like, this, Dad, this is some of the best stuff ever written in prose. And, and, and a man wrote this. <laughs> I guess, I guess, right? 
And then from another great writer, Lucille Ball, it wasn't love at first sight. It took a full five minutes. <laughs> I like that one too. Anyway, um, um, yeah. Uh, so as, as we think about this, I just, just want to uh, remind you of a couple of the things that we talked about last week. One is this instruction to husbands and wives comes in the section in the book where Peter is applying the gospel uh, to the issue of us living uh, submissive lives uh, to the human institutions that are established over us. And so that's why he begins talking to wives with the word likewise, and then he begins talking to husbands likewise, because he's tying this back to the issue of because of the gospel, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are free people, and because we are free people, we submit. He writes that to slaves, he writes that to husbands, he writes that to wives, right? And so that is that, 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 the fact that he, he uses that word likewise each time connects us to that thought. The other thing to note about this is, is that what Peter's doing is in a first century context. You can't make the mistake of reading this totally into the way you live and the way life is for you and your marriage now. Because the very fact, as we said a few weeks ago, that Peter addressed slaves was revolutionary. The fact that he treats wives in the way in which he does, and then the very fact that he is so bold as to instruct husbands, because in this culture, husbands and fathers had absolute power over the people, and I mean absolute power over the people in their households, is revolutionary. So you, you have to get that in, in the context uh, uh, first, uh, uh, first and foremost. So, so last week we talked about what submission uh, is and what it is not, uh, putting it in their particular social and spiritual co- context of first century life. But what I want us to do to, this morning is look at how Peter uh, organizes the rest of this text around the concept of beauty and the concept of honor, right? And, and so I think that's, 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 that'll help us uh, unpack this, this this morning. Now, the, the first question is, what is beauty and who gets to decide who is beautiful? And I will tell you that I think one of the ways that I know we have issues in our own culture is there is a lot of confusion about the issue of beauty and that <clears throat> what is truly beautiful is also considered not beautiful and what uh, is considered ugly uh, in many ways is is also considered uh, beautiful. And so there's a lot of confusion around that and a lot of misunderstanding around that about what is attractive, what is true beauty, and that sort of thing. And so uh, it is, it's a very troubling, very troubling thing uh, for us to, to, to talk about that. And in fact, there are some places in the culture where beauty is viewed as an outdated uh, kind of concept that at best is just kind of ironic, that... That, that, that there really is nothing uh, uh, that is beautiful. But what Peter wants us to understand is, is that God is the author, not only of grace, not only the author of goodness, not only the author of mercy and power and wonder and, and love, but he's the author of beauty. And so it is helpful for us this morning as we look at that to let God instruct us, men and women, about what is beauty what is beautiful, what truly is. Now, you could, you could read this text and you could begin to think, well, he, he says, you know, don't, don't make your beauty, your adornment uh, about, um, 
uh, braided hair or gold jewelry or the clothes you wear, anything like that. And you could read in that that what he's instructing us to do is to walk around uh, in, you know, kind of feed sacks or something like that, and that, and that you're going to let your inner beauty show that way. That is not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is he is rebuking something about a misplaced value, that what we think is uh, that our temptation is because, and this is a theme that runs throughout the, the scriptures, is that we are very visual people. And so we see things and, and, and what we see kind of in the physical universe around us determines what we think is beautiful. Remember, remember when, when Samuel goes to anoint David as king, uh, Jesse brings in all the boys and he sees these big, strapping, good-looking guys. And God's like, nope, nope, nope. Nope, nope. And then finally he gets to David, who's a, still a little kid, uh, and he says, yeah, he's the one, because I look on the heart. Well, um, when you look on the heart and you're attracted and you see beauty, there's an ev- that should be an evidence to you of the work of God in your life, right? And so... Uh, That doesn't mean that physical beauty doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place. But the fact is, uh, one of the ways that you can understand how off we are in our values is, is that Peter says that physical beauty fades. It fades. It just fades. And there's, there's just not a lot more than you can say about that. It fades. And so we, when we set all of our uh, uh, worth and value upon that, we're setting it upon something that's going away, right? We'll talk a little bit more about this as we, as we keep going. So um, Peter Davids writes this in his commentary on 1 Peter, and I, and I, I, I read this to you because um, if you don't like this, he wrote it. Women, women have often internalized the male tendency to view them as sexual objects or as possessions whose appearance displays the wealth and power of the male, which is so funny. I got to say this, because in nature, it's exactly the opposite. Have you ever noticed that? When you think of ducks, probably, you think of a, a, a mallard duck and you see that beautiful stately green head and you think, what a lovely duck. I love those ducks. They're beautiful. You know what? If, that's the male duck. You know what? The, the, the female duck, the hen, is just gray. Have you ever seen a pea hen? Not a peacock, but a pea hen? Not much to look at. But oh, the peacock. Right? Isn't that funny how that works, right? Um, there's something about overcompensation and other things going on in there that I, that I don't want to get too deeply in, engaged and involved in, but it's funny that it works that way in nature, I think, uh, and not so much uh, with us. Um, this comes out in dressing to attract the notice of men or in competing with other women in the richness of their physical appearance. And that's the part that I want you to understand. David's wrote that. Um, I am a competitive person, and I like to win. Uh, I remember 
Um, I was told by my high school football coach uh, the year we went six and five that anytime you win more than you lose, it's a good thing. And so, I, you know, I was really disappointed that we were only six and five. I, you know, I wanted to be 11 and 0. But I like to win. And I, until, uh, really until I had a daughter, I didn't understand how women compete. And I'm not going to say a lot more about that. (laughs) If it applies, it applies, okay? Uh, Peter, like the New Testament in general, will have none of this. So, there you have it. Um, And so I think what happens to us is we... We tend to focus our attention and our energy upon these things. And what Peter gets at is, let me tell you what's really beautiful. Let me help you uh, because I want you to see and I want you to appreciate and I want you to enjoy to the fullest beauty. Beauty that is found in the way God has made us beauty in the way in which God has redeemed us. And, and, and let me show you what is truly beautiful so that you can distinguish it from the counterfeit, right? And so it's interesting uh, how he, he says this, because what he says is that women adorn themselves first by putting their hope in God. Let me go back and reread this so that you see this. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting in the way way in which he thinks about this? So so next slide, please, Becky. So a couple of things to note about this. Uh, The beautiful woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. That's a big temptation, right? Uh, Because you think... Uh, if you could just find some man to choose you, you'll be fully validated. And, and please understand me in this, that, that, that I, uh, I, I, as much as it's humanly possible for me to understand the pain that is in that, I understand it. But I also want you to hear that if your hope is in that relationship or in that human being, um, Beauty will be beyond your reach. She doesn't put her hope in her reputation. She does not put her hope in her children or in getting children. Right? And she certainly does not put her hope uh, in her looks. Right? So so what does it mean then? and, And how does this connect between putting our hope in God and how does that make you beautiful? How does that adorn you? Well, uh, you got to go to Proverbs 31. Now, I know for some of you, Proverbs 31 uh, is just a, 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 on a plaque in your house, right? Or it's, a, it's one of those, it's, it's almost like a Hallmark card where we read Proverbs 31 and we think, oh, that is, that's how quaint. Uh, and, or, or there are others of us who never read it because it condemns us, right? But the fact is, there's some rich theological truth in this description of, 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 of a beautiful woman that we find in Proverbs 31. And one of the things that the writer there says is, strength and dignity are her clothing, 
and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. Now, um, I, I, I don't laugh at the time to come because generally the time to come terrifies me, right? <laughs> right? Next, next slide. So she looks away from the troubles and miseries and obstacles of life that seem to make the future bleak, and she focuses her attention on the sovereign power and love of Jesus Christ who rules in heaven. She knows the good news, that Jesus loves her, that he sees her. Think of all the women in the Gospels that Jesus encounters, and it says that he sees them, right? Um, And more valuable than any man seeing them is the Lord taking notice of these women, right? And, and, And displaying to them his grace and his mercy and his power. So she knows the good news, and she knows the goodness of God, and she knows his promise that he will be with her and help her and strengthen her no matter what. Now, um, recently I was at a, uh, at a meeting and uh, an old, old friend came up to me <clears throat> and was asking me questions about uh, mine and Marty's life. And I shared with him something that's just heartbreaking in, in our family and something that, that we really struggle with and that we pray about and that just um, is, is very hard. <clears throat> and so... This, I knew I was in trouble when I said this to him, and he put his hands on his hips. And he looked at me, and he said, well, as I'm sure you know, our God is sovereign. And I looked back at him because I thought I'd like to put my hands not on my hips, I'll do you better than that. And he looked at me and I said, he's good. He's good. Because if he was just sovereign, life would be pretty bleak. But because he's good and he's sovereign, I have hope. And it puts my fear away. So when we read this, what we see there is that the woman who is beautiful, what adorns her and what gives her the quiet inner beauty is this confidence in the fact that Jesus loved her, that he came for her, that he lived for her, that he died for her, that he rose again for her, and that he is with her. So that is why Peter says that the real problem in beauty is not aging or bad fashion sense, or sagging, or whatever your particular thing is, it is fear. Fear is the enemy of beauty, because fear is the enemy of submission. Next next slide. So uh, mature Christian women know that following Christ will mean suffering. Uh, but they believe the promises, like 1 Peter 3, 14, which we'll talk about <clears throat> in a week. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then 1 Peter four nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. This is what Christian women do. They entrust their souls to a faithful creator. They hope in God, and they triumph over fear. Uh, now, <clears throat> I, put, I made sure you knew that John, John Piper said that because the fact is you probably this morning have already been reminded of the gospel and you have triumphed over your fear in that moment. And then probably not too long after that, you've been overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. Right, and so so this is the, this is the thing that that is the nature of life, right? And it's particularly the nature of life in marriage, and it's particularly the nature of of, of a wife who is married to a man who is a sinner. Next slide. So, and this fear becomes even more real when you are married to a man. Who does not honor you? No wonder you're afraid. I'd be terrified too if I was married to that guy. And, and that you think that your destiny and your life and your hopes and your dreams, all of those things are bound up in this, this man who, who uh, maybe at worst doesn't honor you, uh, or at best doesn't honor you, and at worst is domineering, selfish, and, and only thinks of himself first. Right? So, um, I've, 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 I've told this story before, and it, it's, it's so true, where I, I, years ago, a guy came storming into my office and said, you know, my marriage is in trouble, and you need to tell my wife to submit to me. And I'm like, dude, dude, uh, go back out in the hallway and let's try this again. Come back in here, and let's, let's, let's start over again with this, because there's so much wrong with what you just said to me. Because frankly, if I was married to you, I'd find it very difficult to submit to you as well. Praise God, I'm not married to you. Nor will I ever be. <laughs> right? Um, so, so as, as we think about this, I mean, it is no wonder that what Peter understands, particularly about women who are married to men who don't know the gospel, as we talked about last week, who, who uh, at worst are uh, fully into the culture's understanding of male dominance, or at best are simple sinners who, who stumble over their own selfishness and, and their own lack of understanding and, and, and that sort of thing. If, if, if you begin to believe that my whole destiny is bound up in this man, no wonder that you give way to fear. But the, the, the remedy to fear is the gospel, that Jesus sees me, that he loves me, that he's for me, and that, that ultimately I am married to him. Ultimately, he is my true husband, and he is the one who delivers. He is the one who sees. He is the one who will supply what I need. And as I entrust myself to him, I can take him at his word that that is true beauty. That is true adornment, right? Um, so secondly, he goes on here to say, uh, he calls on husbands to honor their wives. Now, in this culture, this is revolutionary because, because husbands have absolute power. In fact, remember, remember, uh, even when Jesus walked the earth, there was a debate among the rabbis that uh, a husband could divorce his wife if she... Uh, 
uh, committed any sort of uncleanness. And the, the, the word for uncleanness was interpreted as she doesn't look as good as she used to, or, or she burnt the supper, or she doesn't keep the house in the way in which you want. And there was one rabbinical school of thought that said, absolutely, you can divorce her, and you're free to remarry. And when you were divorced in that culture, there, as a woman, there was no court that came alongside you to make sure that your rights were protected. You were out on the street. There was no, nobody to care for you. And so, so husbands could use that in a threatening way over their wives, right? You either do it my way or the highway, literally. And the highway often would mean death, okay? So, so what he says here is, listen, your, your, your wives are to submit to you, and your response, your, your, your attitude towards her is that you are to honor her, and you honor her by living with her in an understanding way. And he uses there this word that's gnosis. It's a Greek word that means particular knowledge, right? It means personal insight that leads to loving, considerate care, right? Um, So it means that you know your wife. What color are her eyes? Shouldn't have to look, right? What are the things about her uh, that, uh, that you know that she particularly loves and appreciates and doesn't like? And, and what are those things that, that, are, uh, that you know that uh, to live with your wife in a considerate way, you have taken the time and energy uh, not just to tell her how things are going to be, but to listen to her, to respect her, to understand that, that <clears throat> as Peter's going to say in a few minutes, that, that she has uh, equal uh, value before the Lord, but she is an heir with you of the, of, of the grace of the, that's in the gospel. And so, so as you understand that, as you think about that, one, the, the thing that you do is you take this position of leadership and you use it to honor, and you honor your wives, uh, he says here, as the weaker vessel. Now, I have thought about this, this, this word, weaker vessel, for almost all of my ministry life to try to figure out what does that mean. Now, uh, most commentators think it means physically weaker, and I used to think that was true until I watched Marty have babies. And I realized then that I could never do that for a whole host of reasons, but mostly because I wouldn't ever want to do that. That, uh, that looks unpleasant. And so, uh, uh, reasonably unpleasant. <laughs> so, uh, thanks, thanks, but no thanks, Jesus, on that one. So, uh, uh, so I, and, and some commentators, and please, I do not agree with this, think that weaker means that they are uh, more prone to emotion. Women are more prone to emotion than men and just irrational. Well, two, two reasons why I know that's not true is because oftentimes in our house, the rational one is the one who says, eating a dozen chocolate chip cookies is probably not smart. <laughs> right? There's some rationality there, right? 
Well, all I can think about is, for about 10 minutes, this is going to make me feel great. <laughs> right? Um, um, <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, and, and particularly it doesn't mean that, because he's just called on women to do something heroic, to make their adornment trust in Christ. Weak, irrational, emotionally, spiritually disabled people can't do that. So it's not, it doesn't mean that. This, this is what I think it means. I think it means, next slide please, Becky. Um, it, it means uh, that weaker means, wait a minute, that's out of order. Anyway, yeah, what is, weaker means vulnerable. That's what it means, right? I think he means vulnerability. And what he means by that is because of their position in the marriage and because of their position in culture, they're particularly vulnerable and particularly in a position where uh, their rights and uh, their worth needs to be defended. What you see about that is that Jesus, that's, that looks like Jesus. Jesus gives honor to the weak all the time. Jesus is the Lord. He is God, but as such, he comes and makes himself a servant, a servant to people who need their feet washed, a servant to people who need their diseases healed, a servant to people who need to be told the truth, a servant to people who need their fears put away, a servant to people who, who uh, uh, don't even know and don't even believe that they need to be served. So what, what he says here is that we demonstrate honor by serving. And, 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 and it's, it's, Jesus is pleased to honor those who are weaker or less honored by the world. And in fact, it means a kind of deference. In, in a way, in a way, and please understand what I mean by this, in a way it means submission. Jesus submits, right? When, when he washes his disciples' feet precisely because he is the Lord. Well, the same thing is true for the husband who honors his wife. He submits to her particular needs and her, her particular stresses and her, her, the, the way that the Lord has uniquely and beautifully made her to serve her, to honor her, to show her that she matters. Uh, and that she matters because she has worth and value because he, he sees her and he loves her, right? And so I think that's a pretty profound thing for us to, to, to think about because the way we tend to think about who gets honor is the powerful or the people that have it together or, or that sort of thing. What he's saying is, no, listen, husbands, I know that the culture tells you that you're in control when in fact Jesus is in control and the way you demonstrate that is by serving, serving your wives. Um, And you may be thinking, how can I do that? Well, I can tell you exactly how you do it. Foolproof way of doing it. Foolproof. Works every time. Ask her. I used to, when I, and many of you, uh, I will give you a primer and a reminder of our time in premarital counseling together that uh, those of the, that I used to say almost to all the couples is, as a good discipline over your married life, you should ask each other once a month, if there's anything about me you could change, what would it be? Not as a weapon, not as something to bludgeon one another with, but 
as a way of coming at this issue of how am I doing in a loving way in honoring you? Next slide. Um, But Peter says that husbands honor their wives also because you're both heirs together of the grace of God, which is even more radical because in this culture, uh, the only heir was the oldest son. But Peter says, in Christ, you both get full inheritance. You both get full rights. You both get everything that the Father has for you. And so why would you dishonor someone who before the Father has equal status in the inheritance, who gets the same inheritance and the same worth and the same value that you do, right? And so what he wants us to see here is that honor is due because Jesus honors. Because Jesus honors. Because Jesus as the true bridegroom uh, loves and honors his bride. And he uh, washes her and he presents her without any fault, without any weakness, without anything like that. And so I think these two pictures of beauty and um, uh, of honor is what God intended in the garden when he presented Eve to Adam and Adam said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is what I've been looking for. And he is undone by her beauty and the goodness of God in this great gift to him. And, and he is just overwhelmed with, with, with the favor and the love and the grace and the mercy that God shows him in presenting him with this one who is so beautiful in the fact that there she is, just freshly created, freshly minted by her creator, trusting her creator, knowing her creator, and in in awe of the gift that this husband is to her. So let, let let me just help you unpack this last thing. Here's the deal. One of the things that I think because beauty and honor are the keys to understanding this passage, we tend to think that this is something that we can generate ourselves. When in fact, the source of beauty is Jesus Christ. And the source of honor is Jesus Christ. Okay? So, husbands, when you look at your wives, and every, every healthy marriage, every husband, and you know what I'm talking about, There has been a moment or moments in your marriage where you looked at your wife and you were undone by how beautiful she was. I would submit to you that when that happened, it wasn't just because you liked that dress or you liked that perfume or that haircut. The Lord was blessing you and blessing her by being in your wife and demonstrating to you what true beauty is. Wives, as you look and see your husbands and as they honor you, 
Does it remind you of the honor that is yours in the gospel and the one who loved you, who lived for you, who died for you, and who rose again for you? Back when we were really poor, and um, we had two little boys at home and a, a little girl on the way. And um, we were lucky to get a free babysitter because that was the only kind we could afford. And uh, it was Marty's birthday, and so we decided we would go to the Jefferson for lunch. For lunch, because we couldn't afford dinner. We could barely afford lunch. Um, and so, live with your wife in an understanding way, put on a coat and tie, dress up, go to a nice place. And so we went. Um, and uh, there's some hilarious things that happened there that I don't have time to get into this morning. But I remember standing in the lobby. Uh, she had a hand-me-down dress on uh, because we'd gotten rid of a lot of the... Uh, previous maternity clothes because we thought our family was complete. Thank you, Jesus. And um, I remember looking at her across the uh, um, lobby thinking, wow, wow, look at that. I'm a blessed man. Not just because I'm about to eat some great food, with a beautiful woman, but just look at that. She's stunning. She didn't even know she was stunning. She was, she was thinking she was big and, you know, all the things that go along with, with pregnancy because we were just a few weeks away till Madeline was going to be born. And I think God taught me a lesson in that. I think he taught me what real beauty is, is found in Jesus. And I think what I was seeing that day, obviously it was my beautiful pregnant wife, but I was seeing Jesus in her. And it overwhelmed me. I would submit to you today to look for Jesus in your spouse. To see true beauty. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thanks today for your love and your mercy to us. Thanks uh, for um, how you, um, um, well, just how you teach us and how you demonstrate before us uh, what, uh, what beauty and what honor is. Thanks today for um, this text. And Lord, I know that uh, there are folks here today who... Uh, probably have one foot out the door in their marriage. I know there are folks today who, uh, when they think about these issues, they feel a lot of pain and a lot of struggle. I, I know there are a lot of folks today who feel lonely, uh, both uh, who are married and who long to be married. And I know that there are folks today who, um, well, they've calloused over their hearts and they've hardened against uh, you, maybe, and uh, even uh, against their spouse. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift, the beautiful gift, the honoring gift of repentance, 
Uh, and I pray that uh, by the power of the gospel, you would uh, change um, us, that you would change and redeem marriages, uh, and that you would give uh, grace, uh, particularly where it's needed. pray that you would strengthen and encourage uh, and uh, just help us, Lord. Um, Lord, for for women today who uh, are not honored, I pray that you would uh, remind them of the honor that is theirs in Jesus Christ. I pray for the husbands who uh, uh, cannot um, love their wives in in an understanding way, uh, that you would uh, move them, give them the gift of repentance by loving them in an understanding way. And I pray that you would help us uh, bear witness uh, in our marriages to the power of the gospel, to the power of the good news. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys uh, come up to take up the offering,